Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. U of M Prof. Brian Peeler on the crisis in the Middle East. Councilor Matt Allard on this request for proposals on transit security. And Dr. Cyrus Dirksen on the $70 million Lotto Max jackpot. Please rate the podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast. And now, the podcast. on the phone from the University of Manitoba, Brian Peeler, a prof in uh, political studies. Brian, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Hal. Thanks for having me on today. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, um, uh, we talked a bit about this last half hour, your initial reaction to where we're at today. Um, it's, <laughs> it's hard to tell where we are today. I mean, my understanding is that the uh, what would be equivalent to the National Security Council in the U.S. in uh, in uh, Iran was meeting today, and I guess the Supreme. It's the first time. Uh, my understanding, again, my understanding is the first time the Supreme Leader has actually met with this group in years. So, it's uh, we're just waiting to see what the Iranian response is going to be. Any idea what that might be? Well. I've seen lots of people uh, talking about how this, you know, could lead to a major escalation of tensions in the Middle East. And I think Iran will probably carefully uh, calibrate how they respond to this. Um, they don't want to provoke further U.S. Uh, further U.S. response, and particularly in in Iran. But it also does need to save face from, uh, and it, so it's not obvious what they might do next. And what do you, uh, we were talking a bit about Trump last half hour, too, and some things that he said about Barack Obama back in 2011, uh, you know, starting a war, uh, worried about how he might do in the election. I I don't want to get into that. There's obviously politics at play here, but this was a very bad guy, and they obviously had an opportunity to go after him, to get him. And they did that. Uh, now, he didn't consult with Congress, and he didn't talk to allies. Um, should we be reading much into that, or, or was this a, sort of a necessary action? Well, I do think it was sort of, it was a necessary action. I mean, Iran recently, they've shot down U.S. drones. They've seized oil tankers in the Strait of Hormuz. They've bombed Saudi oil infrastructure. And it was the, the Iranian-backed militia that led the attack on the U.S. embassy in Iraq a couple of days ago. Uh, uh, Soleimani was um, part of that. Uh, so the U.S. did need to do something. So I'm not so so much worried about that. But, um, I mean, the not consulting allies may be a problem, because remember now that Canada is now in charge of the uh, NATO mission in Iraq, uh, which is headquartered in Baghdad. And I, if, if I remember correctly, we have approximately 850 or so troops there at the moment. So we could be a target as a type of you know, Iranian response to what is done, has been done. Yeah, and and that's what I was going to ask you. My next question was going to be, what does this mean to us? I guess potentially it could mean higher gas prices. Uh, It could mean an attack uh, on Canadian troops there. Um, We don't know what to expect at this point, do we? exactly. Um, And I think that's what I would be most worried about is what could possibly happen. 
happened to other troops, uh, our particular our troops in the region. Like I said, the Iranian regime is probably not going to engage in a sort of tit for tat response, like go after someone as like. Um, as high up in the U.S. military as he was in the Iranian military. But what they're more likely to do is we'll see more sort of attacks like we've seen previously, like I mentioned about the drone and seizing of oil tankers. What I would expect is possibly to see more of those sort of low-level lo- low actions more often. Yeah. But who knows? I mean, I mean this... Um, Soleimani, was, he was an important leader in the Iranian uh, Revolutionary Guard. And, I mean, we're... Again, it's just, you know, we can't be certain what could happen next. Yeah, you know, it's in Trump is an interesting president um, because he he doesn't seem terribly concerned. This is just how it seems to me. Uh, at times, he doesn't seem terribly concerned about consequences, where I think other presidents in the past have maybe said, well, you know, they're a little more cautious. Trump seems to make up his mind and just do it. Yeah, um, which... <laughs> Apparently, I mean, some of the reports I saw last night were that this even surprised people in the U.S. Defense Department. That yeah. they, and that is worrisome, <laughs> that they didn't, weren't expecting this, because we need to sort of think through the consequences of what could happen next. And given the, you know, the people that are, are around President Trump and his advisors, I'm not so sure that there's a national security apparatus in place that I would trust to deal with what could come next from Iran. Yeah, it's not a very deep bench there in the Trump administration when it comes to foreign relations, is it? No. Yeah. Um, Some people are saying, you know, this is uh, history repeating itself going back to 1979. Do you think we do you think uh, do you think we'll see retaliation of some point and then things will sort of normalize again? Or, you know, as I said earlier, and and I realize social media, (laughs) social media is what it is. But there are people I think this morning, the hashtag World War Three was number one trending number one. So. I mean, what what level of concern are you at, Brian? Yeah, I'm not. I'm not uh, worried so much. Worried about that. I mean, the, the Iranian regime wants to preserve itself. So, like I said earlier, it's not going to want to, uh, in particular, I think, want to provoke a U.S. response on Iranian so, uh, soil. And that what we'd see is more of these sort of attacks we've seen in the past just stepped up. But that said, I mean, I believe in the next few days, I mean, the Iranians may step, you know, as a response to this, uh, may step up their nuclear program. And then who knows? We're not sure how uh, the rest of the world may respond to that. Yeah. Yeah, there's uh, certainly a lot to be concerned about in that part of the world. And yet this has been going on for decades, well, hundreds of years, really, hasn't it? Um, more or less, Yeah. <laughs> And I just and I don't um, again, know you know like you we get we see something like this and we get concerned as I think we should, but then this sort of stuff has been going on for so long in that part of the world and I wonder you know do we really have any uh, control or ability to uh, influence things there? Should we be doing that, trying to play a role? When I say we, I mean the U.S. primarily, but the yeah. West, you know, should the West even be bothering with the Middle East? Um. I mean, I do, we, we do have uh, national interests here, like I said, with respect to, I mean, we want to make sure that uh, people who are living in Iraq are, are safe. We want to make sure our soldiers who are there are safe. So I do think we do have an interest here. And um, 
yeah, I think that's, you know, we want to make sure that everyone who is, is you know, in particular, our troops are safe there. Yeah. Well, let's hope they are. And uh, yeah. let's hope that if we do see retaliation from the Iranians, it, it won't involve uh, our Canadian troops there in uh, in Baghdad and in Iraq. Brian, thanks yeah. a lot for this. I really appreciate it. I'm sure we'll talk again. I don't think this You're... is going to be over anytime soon. <laughs> You're very welcome, Hal. Have Thank a nice you. weekend. You as well. Brian Peeler, Professor of Political Studies at the University of Manitoba. Uh, joining us on the phone now, second time this week, Matt Allard, the counselor for St. Boniface. Um, Matt, uh, happy new year. It's officially 2020. All the best. Thank you. Happy new year to you too. Hey, uh, can I have that $70 million so that we can cancel all the tra- the potential cuts to, to the transit budget? Well, as I was saying that, I was thinking, you know, uh, $70 million probably would come in pretty handy down at City Hall, eh? Yeah, yeah. Well, it would cancel the cuts and it'd, it'd give us an extra twenty million dollars to do to do something else with. So that would be amazing if you could line that up. <laughs> what would you do? So if we took you. care, so if we took care of the potential cuts and you had twenty million left over, mm-hmm. what would you, Matt Allard, spend that twenty million on? Oh my goodness, that is uh, that is such a good question. Uh, you know. Uh, can I think about it? You, you start. You started this, Matt. Yes. I started it. That's yeah. True. No, that's true. okay. You know, yeah. Like, if you look at my ward in St. Boniface, uh, there's a lot of uh, things that are on the chopping block right now. Uh, if we can't find ways to finance it, uh, pool closures, arena yeah. closures. If I could cancel all that, I'd, I'd love to be able to do that. Yeah, it'd be nice if we could do that. Um, I want to talk to you today about this uh, RFP, Request for Proposals for Transit Security. Tell me about this. Yeah, so this has been a long time coming. Uh, so um, so the City of Winnipeg established an advisory committee called the Transit Advisory Committee. And uh, that, has, uh, that has representation from the Winnipeg Police, uh, from... Uh, WAPSO, which represents the inspectors that are currently doing the uh, the security work on buses, um, the Amalgamated Transit Union, uh, Functional Transit, um, and and others. And so, anyway, this is the culmination of work of that committee that comes with a unanimous recommendation from them on the terms of reference this RFP. And it's basically uh, to help us sort out uh, what what um, what the security should look like on Winnipeg Transit, essentially. And has the committee come up with any ideas, or are you guys wide open? Well, I, I guess they're, they're, um, when, we, when we first made the, um, the decision, and it was a split decision with a transit advisory committee to hire additional point inspectors, so basically expanding the, uh, the force of the, the people that we have uh, that, are, that are sort of boots on the ground, eyes on the street. Uh, when, things, when things get uh, escalate, though, they still have to phone the Winnipeg police and, uh, and ask them to intervene. So... Other jurisdiction has other jurisdictions have um, some have full-fledged police officers, some have private security, and some have inspectors like Winnipeg. But um, uh, some of those jurisdictions that have inspectors, uh, those inspectors have uh, things like powers to detain. So if there is a if there's a situation on the bus, they can ask that person uh, to to get off the bus and uh, and then do do what they need to do um, uh, in in situations where those situations do escalate. So. It's really a, it's a, the hope is that once we do the study is that we'll have a better idea of what fits for Winnipeg and what we should do going forward here. And right now, those supervisors, just to be clear, those supervisors do not have the right to detain as it is right now. That's correct. Okay. But that could possibly come from this. Well, potentially. So, I mean, there was that split decision uh, from the Trans Advisory Committee. Not everyone's comfortable with that direction. 
And, uh, and we, we really want to be able to, to really study this uh, in, in detail to see what would be the appropriate um, delivery for Winnipeg. Uh, you know, some have, some have called for police force. Uh, some, you know, some want to see an expansion of the inspector force. Uh, and some, uh, you know, some, some people even don't think it's really that appropriate to have that sort of level of security on buses. So, so we need to get more information. We need to find out what uh, six other major Canadi- Canadian cities are doing and uh, hoping that there's going to be uh, a qualified candidate that's going to bid on this uh, opportunity to be able to advise the city on how we should go forward on this. What are some of the other cities in Canada doing? Well, I'm thinking of my trip to, uh, I've been to Toronto, and uh, when, when I was in Toronto, I think they have inspectors there, and uh, they, have, they have something there which is proof of payment. So, so when you go on a Toronto bus, um, the, the fare box isn't up to the bus driver to regulate anymore. Um, in Toronto, you, if you don't pay your fare, you have a chance of a fine, and that fine is, uh, is levied by an inspector. So that's one example. In Vancouver, they've got um, they've got uh, transit police, which is I understand funded by the province. Uh, if you look to the U.S. Uh, in New York, and I know I'm getting out of Canada, but New York, they've got uh, they had some significant issues with with their transit, and they they actually created a, a full fledged police force, uh, but just, but specifically for transit. And uh, Ottawa has done the same thing. So there's there is quite a range of of different. Um, uh, different implementations of security on buses. But one thing is, uh, there, there is one trend, I think, in major cities, and that's that there is a desire to have uh, greater security on transit, generally, uh, than, the, than the general police force is able to provide in all those major cities. So those major cities tend to bring in an additional force because, uh, because there's, there's uh, specific issues uh, in terms of transit. And I, for anybody who uses transit, Drivers and members of the public, I think everyone uh, wants to, to know that they're safe on buses. So you mentioned a couple things there, and I want to ask you, is this about security or is it about making sure people pay their fares when they get on the bus or both? Yeah, you know, I, I, uh, you know I'm, I'm ad-libbing a bit. The, secu- the, the fare piece, is, uh, that's, uh, that's my own, uh, that's my own uh, narrative. I know that I heard from uh, the, the Amalgamated Transit Union over the years that one of the major sources of conflict between drivers and uh, certain members of the public is that fare box. But this is, this is more of a general study to look at sec- more security in general. It's not looking at fares. And what about public consultation? Will Winnipeggers get a chance to weigh in? Well, so the, the scope of the, I mean, with city, with city politics, everyone has a chance to weigh in um, all the time. Our committee process is very, is very open. And, uh, and so in terms of, uh, you know, this, this, this report will be made public. It will be debated. Um, uh, there will be feedback from the Trans Advisory Committee. There's no specific um, uh, consultation with the public as, par- as part of this RFP. The, uh, the list of stakeholders to be consulted would be the Winnipeg Police Service. Winnipeg Police Association, the Winnipeg Association of Public Service Officers, and the province of Manitoba, because uh, because ultimately, if if there were if there were um, certain implementations or certain forces might need uh, new powers from the province of Manitoba to be granted to them. And you mentioned that the committee was torn on this. It was a split vote, I think, was the language you used. What what are the concerns from the people uh, not happy about this RFP? Yeah. Okay. So, so that's uh, it, the decision was split. 
when we decided to hire additional point inspectors. So that's something that happened over a year ago. Right. Okay. Uh, this, in terms of this RFP, it did it did receive unanimous support from All the right. people at the table. So, um, so, so this is just the first step, and the next step would be actually, well, there's there's actually get the qualified candidate to to write the study, mm. and then once we have a report, that that will be debated, I'm sure. Any idea on on cost or or is that way too soon for that? Uh, well, the cost for the study is up to hundred thousand dollars. That's uh, in the public RFP documents. Yep. Um, but in terms of additional costs, yeah. uh, you know, it could be there could be a very ri- wide range of things considered. Um, it, it could be there. There could be a very wide range. I don't. I don't know that I should be putting numbers to it because. Uh, uh, because I don't have the information. Yeah, and it, and it depends what what is decided, I suppose. I, I will ask one other thing, and then I'll I'll let you go, Matt. Um, if uh, these inspectors end up getting the right or the ability to detain somebody if there's an issue, that sort of goes against every other thing we've seen in Winnipeg and Manitoba when it comes to security and when there are issues. We usually see the old. You know, do nothing, let them, you know, uh, hands-off approach, whereas it sounds here like maybe there might be a hands-on approach. Well, I think if if we do go in the direction of inspectors with more power, uh, one of the things that is going to be uh, necessary is proper training for those officers. And uh, I've had a bit of experience now talking to uh, to people who are involved in, in training of security security officers and I think with that training, um, you know, that hands-on is, is really, I think, a, a last resort. And you want to do everything you can before getting to that point. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think there are situations where, um, you know, one, one of the inspectors I talked to said that maybe once or twice in his career, he's needed that power and he, he hasn't had it. And uh, so I think it's, it's already something that, um, uh, you know, I, I think it's something that would have to be, um, that would have to come with training. And uh, with, with that training, the security officials would know uh, when it's appropriate or not. Matt, thanks a lot for your time. I had a thought, too, before I let you go here. You know, maybe get the rest of council together, Mayor Bowman, too. All of you throw five bucks in. Go and get some Lotto Max tickets, and who knows? <laughs> that's, that's a great idea, Hal. Huh? <laughs> that's maybe it's, yeah, maybe, that's sure. one, maybe that's one thing all of you at City Hall can agree on, buying a ticket <laughs> yeah. for the draw tonight. Yeah, well, uh, I'll, I'll see where that goes. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's a great prize, and uh, that's a great suggestion, too. Matt, thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you. Matt Allard, he's the councillor for St. Boniface. He chairs this transit committee, and there is an RFP now, a request for proposals for transit security. Just after the 2.30 news, and so Dr. Cyrus Dirksen is here with so much paper spread around in front of him. Usually work off an iPad. What's going on? Well, I wasn't in work, so I, my little iPad pen is uh, not charged, so I'm back to markers and paper here. You mean you came in today, you're not even at work, you're not working today, and you came in just for me. I just love your company. Isn't that great? That's fantastic. Actually, one of the subjects we're going to talk about today has to do with money, but before we get into that, uh-huh. can I ask you your opinion on the big $70 million Lotto Max jackpot oh. tonight? Biggest ever. Everybody's talking about it. Everybody's buying tickets. Um, What do you make of, um, uh, here's what interests me about this. When it starts getting up there, the the number starts getting bigger. That's when I get interested. And I go in, and even we've had people, lottery officials on, say that. Say that's why they, you know, keep bumping it up to a bigger number because it gets people buying more tickets. People get excited. What is that all about? Like, what is... 
I, I wish I knew. I, I should look it up because I, I noticed the same thing, and, and really it doesn't make any logical sense. I mean, because your chances are less. Your of chances are less, and and you would think that maybe ten million is enough, so you should be going when yeah, it's lower, right? And and going out and doing that, you know, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting phenomenon. We should talk about it more. I think uh, I bet you there's an interesting kind of odd psychological principle, but I I have to say I don't know yeah. what it is. I guess we we hope to win. You know, mm-hmm. we, we daydream about yeah. trips and the things we would love to do if we had more money. I guess yeah. that's what it's all about, right? It's like that just that attention that that it gets when it's bigger, right? You know, when people can dream again and they're surprised by how big it is now and people do love to dream we actually don't live all that much in our reality we function better when we live in alternative realities and the alternative realities can be good or bad and uh, if we can make good alternative realities like the lotto and things like that um, we usually function somewhat better I don't I wouldn't argue that the lotto is the best alternative reality to live in it's usually better to live in one that's a little bit more realistic but it's better than it's better than sometimes what's actually going on in people's lives. So there you go. You know, it, it may be good, may be better, but there's probably something out there that's even better than dreaming about the lotto. Yeah, and I talked to Carolyn about this yesterday. Carolyn Classen was in yesterday from Connexus Counseling, and I like to talk to her and you about this kind of stuff. We also had a conversation yesterday about um, people that win all this money and then they blow it. Oh, you know, yeah. like it, it's uh, she sort of she said joy is one of the hardest emotions to deal mm. with. Mm-hmm. And and I wonder if it's not like when you are in a great relationship or you're with somebody you don't feel you deserve. Some people yep. have that, you know, mm-hmm. me, I deserve it and more. That's right. how I am. <laughs> I'm kidding. But, uh, you know, when we don't deserve it, uh, we maybe sabotage it. Maybe that's what these people win all these millions and they blow it. You know, I've never seen a theory on it, so I've created my own because it's an interesting principle about, about uh, people's finances and, and how people who are in debt continue to be in debt, people who have money continue to have money. Even with, with varying circumstances, people who have money will go through really bad things, lose a lot, and still bounce back and get to that number again. And... I believe now, after watching this for some time, that there is a psychological amount that everybody feels comfortable at, like a set amount. And when you're below that amount, and the amount can be minus, when you're below that amount, then you become constricted and you start to feel like, oh my goodness, I don't have enough money. But when you're above that amount, you start to feel free and you feel like you can spend. And uh, sometimes these things are stronger or weaker. So if you're if you win the lottery, you're way above your set amount, um, and so you're more likely then to uh, to spend it because it's above your amount. So let's say somebody might have just to give you an example, somebody might have a minus ten thousand amount. So that means when they have minus five thousand, they're feeling wealthy, and they still they go out and spend more. But when they're at minus fifteen, they start to feel constricted. They get worried, and they want to get back to minus ten, and they start to do things in their lives to do that. So I find that people will vary a little bit, bumping you know up and down, but they come back to their limit. And so what I do when I work with people when they who want to make money or, or usually make money, they don't want to lose money. Uh, what I do is I try to hide money that um, that's above their limit. So if somebody's minus ten, I'll say, well, then live at minus ten. It's going to be a bit more expensive, but it's better just to accept that. Uh, and then if you're at minus five, go go hide five thousand dollars to get yourself back to minus ten. And keep hiding that money that gets you above your limit. If your limit is plus 10, plus 20, hide anything above it in some kind of thing that you don't see right away. Uh, Maybe some investment or some collectible or something that's you don't think about or is hard to liquidate. It's hard to get the money out of it. And you'll just naturally go back to your set point. 
And uh, it's awkward for somebody who's at minus five to start saving money and putting it somewhere else and to go back to minus 10. But hey, if you can't fight that amount, if you can't fight that set limit, it's better to do that then than to wait for that never coming moment when you're actually above zero. Hmm. So I, if you look at your own life, look at see what is your set limit yep. and how are you managing that and see if it's true for you. Yeah, I think it is. As yeah. you were as you were explaining your theory, I like it. As you were explaining, I'm thinking, yeah, no, there are numbers yep. that I feel okay at. Mm-hmm. And if they vary too much one way or the other, yeah. I either feel really good or I get worried. And people will hide money. Like oftentimes people can't say, but they don't consider the mortgage their money. Right. So in their personal account, they'll stay at like plus five, let's say. They'll never get above that. And then when they retire, they're like, well, I guess I have to retire on like the house I purchased because that was the money that they were saving because they didn't consider it money. Mm-hmm. But if they had actually remortgaged and put all of that money in their personal account, they would have spent it on something mm-hmm. and gotten back down to their limit of or their, their set amount in their psychology. Yeah. Sometimes people can change it over time. I do think people can change it. Uh, but that takes a bit of work. And it's, I, it's usually easier just to become aware of it and find ways to work with it to hide money uh, in your life so that you don't put it in that checking account where all of a sudden it's just going to bounce back. Some mm. people can't hide it. Some people yeah. just know where it is. <laughs> they sniff it out. They eh? sniff it out. They can't <laughs> stop themselves. And then yeah. uh, some, sometimes people even give money to parents or things like that. It's really hard to manage when you are that motivated to go and uh, take money out of collectibles or things like that. That yeah. gets more, then it becomes more addictive, you know. Mm. Interesting. Okay, uh, here's our first subject headline Do your genes influence how much money you earn? Well, Which is, you, you know, kind of what we're talking about sure. in a sense. So explain this one. Well, they can now see. Well, they've out, they've been able to do this for a while, oftentimes through twin studies and things like this. And when they were looking at to find out how much of a genetic impact there is on different psychological factors, and what they found was that there are genes, uh, you know, 149 different genes that are associated with income. However, they found that they weren't directly related to income. They seem to be the same genes that are re- responsible for IQ or intelligence. So hmm. it is. There's no like magic gene that's just gonna like give you money. There might be something that gives you an ability uh, that helps you with uh, making money, but not as much just kind of directly. And it does seem that income is related to that a little bit. But you know what? It's interesting. There are genes associated with things that you might not really think about, like being a picky eater. Being a picky eater is 78% genetic. Really? Yeah. So when you're dealing with a kid, have a little bit of, I mean, you still got to work on it. Yeah. Um, I think it is, there's still, you know, some amount Well, how here. do you battle genetics though? How, right. do you, how do you? Well, it's not hundred percent genetic. So you right. got, you got 22% there that you're working with. Um, there's a lot of people like, like for example, with schizophrenia, um, let's say you have a twins and they both have the same genes. One develops schizophrenia. They're identical twins. One develops schizophrenia at 25 or whatever. And the other one doesn't. And it's like, well, their genes are the same. Isn't schizophrenia genetic? Not 100%. So somebody might have something in their environment, some extra stress or hmm. something um, maybe that... A trigger of some, some kind sort, of trigger eh? that actually triggers that gene and actually develops a serious disorder. There's a virginity component, like with virginity, virginity gene, 30% is controlled by genetics. Uh, so if you're, I don't know, uh, if you've got... Whenever you lost your virginity, it's not maybe completely as much up to you <laughs> as you thought. <laughs> the popularity genes, 
there's by the way, for me, it wasn't up to me at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I had no uh, say at all. Sheesh, 100%. 100%. Uh, ruthless dictator genes. So there are genes, of, so, uh, that maybe makes sense. I mean, narcissism is yeah. somewhat genetic. So if you've got, uh, you know, what did it say here? It actually labeled inter- the little Hitlers in your office. But what's interesting about that, though, is that it's varying levels, right? Yeah, different you know things, what I mean? different like, amounts. Isn't, isn't that interesting, mm-hmm. eh? There's some things will have more, you'll have more of an opportunity in your environment to control. Now, also realize none of these things are 100% genetic. Yeah. Um, so there's So nothing still, is 100% genetic. Oh, you know, like some things, like really physical things yeah. and, you know, I mean, right. there are things that are more 100%, but even identical twins don't look exactly the same. They True. often look very close, yeah. but there's environmental things that happen as they're yeah. being born and the way their bones move and things like this mm. that do affect them. So it's hard to find something that's 100% genetic they can get high but uh you have some room in your life to make changes hmm. to make a better life which is that good. is very interesting i found mm-hmm. that one interesting uh here's the next headline what it's like when your relationship future is unclear uh, how does that impact us when we it, don't know where the relationship is going there's not a lot of research on people who are separated and rates of getting back together again and i get that question quite a bit because people are sometimes struggling with whether they should get separated and it seems uh, six to eighteen percent of people who are still married have been separated at one point in their relationship. So they're obviously they came back together and um, and didn't go through with it, didn't get divorced. So there is hope that if you get separated, that you might still come back together again. Although a lot of people who separate will eventually uh, get divorced, and there are there are some couples. I wouldn't say it happens a lot, but who just chronically live in this ambiguity, uh, on-again, off-again relationship, sometimes for decades, and it can be very challenging to find a way for them to manage that. They just can't pull apart from each other. And I don't know how many people out there have actually gone through something like this, but any kind of ambiguity, even in a relationship, is just very stressful. It's I don't know if I'm married. You can't make plans. You can't plan vacations. You can't plan children. You can't figure this stuff out. And so usually there is some kind of time limit for people on like they can't mm-hmm. go on. And that's very stressful yeah. um, to actually continue on with. Is usually the best, and, and maybe there's not, maybe you can't speak in general terms, but is it usually best, unless somebody obviously is in physical danger or something like that, in a relationship, is it always best to stay together and try and battle through it together? Or are there times where you go, mm. yeah, you guys do need a break? You know, the... I personally, like, or our, my, in my practice, yeah. I don't recommend divorce ever. That doesn't mean that people shouldn't get divorced, I guess. Like, these are decisions. I don't make that decision for people. Yeah, so right. if somebody came to my practice and they're like, should I get divorced? I'll say, that's not, like, that's not a fair question for me to answer. Yeah. Um, so the closest I come to is recommending separation, um, which I see is quite different from divorce. Separation, although it can sometimes contribute to lead an eventual, to yeah, yeah, it can eventually lead to that. It's quite different. And People will often look at divorce or separation. Sometimes they don't even consider separation. They just mm-hmm. think, go straight yeah, to... Yeah, it's done. Either. It's over. It's done. It's very, I, think, I think part of that yeah. is we live in this real disposable mm-hmm. society, right? Yeah. We throw everything away. Yeah, yeah. definitely. And uh, even in separations, people are very black and white in their thinking. So oftentimes what I'm talking about with people is... How do you want to separate? Do you want to separate in the same house? Do you want to separate uh, sexually, emotionally, yeah. uh, parent, parentally, all of them in the same house, separate houses? Like there's a lot of gray mm. even in 
uh, how you do a separation. And I find that some form of separation, and people often come in and they're, they're somewhat separated already. Yeah, they're not feeling right. as close to each other. If they're other. coming to see you, yeah. chances are it's already pretty far down there, the road. There's some eh? kind of emotional yeah. separation for sure. And what I'm often telling people, this is what I believe, is that if you can make your physical relationship, an emotional relationship, um, look the same, if you can line those up. So if you feel really like you hate the other person and you're still living in the same house, it's very stressful. And if you can make your physical relationship look the same as your emotional relationship, it actually reduces stress, hmm. which is tricky because sometimes... And then you can sort of see the issue better, right? Yeah, hopefully we want to reduce Less that. cloud. What and... can sometimes happen, and this is very dangerous, is therapists will sometimes recommend divorce because people will come back and say, oh, I'm so thankful. Because what the, what the couple did was they divorced, the stress went down because now their physical relationship resembles their emotions, and they think that they made the right decision. And I don't want to say they didn't, yeah. but I think therapists can sometimes make some hay off of happy clients who have divorced who maybe could have made their relationship work, mm-hmm. now have to struggle with some of these effects of divorce in their children and, their, and later in life, yep. and uh, actually having come together... Uh, may have been beneficial in the end or possible. Mm. And uh, so I think we have to be careful about recommending divorce because there is that false uh, lowering stress that happens when you get away from somebody you're having a conflict with when still there's a possibility of getting back together. Hal Anderson Afternoons, the podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.